multitudes of sincere and trusting believers are caught in the virtually invisible web of religious captivation in charismatic and other neo-Pentecostal churches and don't know it. They are unaware victims of spiritual abuse and exploitation perpetrated under the heavy hand of hyper-authoritarianism, that is to say, the leadership of the church group of which they are a part is dominating, controlling, and manipulating their followers, thereby exploiting them for personal gain and private kingdom building. Welcome to the Real Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lambert. In an hour when deception and apostasy is rampant on earth, the need for proclaiming the real truth has never been more desperate. Jesus prophesied, an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Proclaiming the real truth of the written and rhema prophetic word of God that he is revealing in this hour concerning the church Jesus is building is our goal. Affecting real change in the hearts and minds of believers in Christ in order to fulfill the purposes and plans of God is our purpose. Horror stories of authoritarian abuse and exploitation and psychological enslavement in bona fide Christian churches abound. From time to time, particular isolated incidents have erupted in highly publicized news stories. However, those high-profile cases are really only the tip of the iceberg. The truth of the matter is, as several decades of my counseling ministry to hundreds of victims bears out, ecclesiastical enslavement and exploitation is widespread in certain sectors of Christendom in this nation. And it is vital to understand I'm not talking about radical, fringe, religious sects and cults, but well-respected church groups espousing otherwise orthodox Christian beliefs, whose membership is comprised of a cross-section of average Americans, individuals, and families of every race, education level, station, and walk of life. Though religious predomination is certainly nothing new, and hyper-authoritarianism is by no means limited to the neo-Pentecostal branch of the church, it has, however, especially flourished in the charismatic and so-called second and third wave, that is, neo-Pentecostal groups, since it was infused into the very fabric, foundation, and functions of that branch of the church in the early to mid-70s. Moreover, it is the charismatic branch of which this ministry has been a part since its inception, which gives me not only the right, but also the duty to bring reproof of error and errancy in that realm. This is Stephen Lambert. 
We trust you're enjoying this episode of The Real Truth Podcast. You can submit your comments and questions at realtruthradio.com. The Common Control Mechanisms We turn our attention now to the common control mechanisms employed within these hyper-authoritarian groups. Remember as you study them that, as previously mentioned, the premise of absolute submission, which is the bedrock of such authoritarian doctrines, coupled with the enslaving organizational and authority structure, are the primary components that make these techniques and mechanisms effectual and effective. Just one other comment before we get to them. As you will readily notice, the primary force behind these subjugation techniques and mechanisms of manipulation and their common denominator is fear. This in itself is Satan's unmistakable signature and seal that distinguishes all that is demonic from that which is from God. For all of Satan's works are predicated upon and produce fear whereas all that God does is founded in and produces faith. Number 1. Apotheosis of the Leadership Apotheosis means to exalt something or someone to divine rank or stature, or in other words, to deify. This is precisely what takes place in bona fide cults, as well as in groups where excessive authoritarianism is practiced. De facto deification of the leadership In these groups, the leadership are exalted to a status tantamount to being equal with God within the structure and internal operations of that group. For all intents and purposes, the chief leader of that group is God, in that his authority is absolute. What he says goes. The authority of the leader and his delegates is absolute and unchallengeable and its scope gradually expands to the point of eventually becoming all-encompassing, affecting every segment of their followers' lives. The truth, however, as indicated throughout this volume, is that God and the Word of God is the only true and valid authority over any adult, law-abiding human, believer or unbeliever. Moreover, the authority of the intermediaries or ministers, God works through, is limited to the spiritual realm and to the very parochial bounds of the government or administration of the specific spiritual house, i.e. local church or ministry, over which they preside. In groups where this totally fallacious concept of leadership apotheosis has been successfully instituted, it casts a very long and imposing shadow of total domination and subjugation over the entire congregation. The power of this religious predomination lays in the purported premise that to disobey the dictates and desires of the leadership is to disobey and defy God himself, in that those leaders are the literal representations of Christ himself, much in the same way as the Pope is regarded in Catholicism. Indeed, as if on cue, just a few days prior to the editing of these words in the original version, 
One of the tabloid news television programs did a story on a scandal taking place in a prominent charismatic church in Atlanta, led by a very well-known bishop and founder of the ICCC, International College of Bishops, in which several female former administrative staffers charged several of the church's top leaders with various forms of sexual misconduct perpetrated under the color of ministerial authority. In attempting to explain how it was that these adult, responsible, presumably intelligent, sincere Christians could have been seduced by the alleged adulterous advances of these clerical-collared clergymen, one of the alleged victims responded with tears of apparent remorse and shame flowing down her flushed face, quote, These men were like God to us. We were taught that whatever they said was right, and to disobey them was to disobey God, end quote. This situation is a glaring example of the kind of abuse of authority that can result from improper and undue exaltation of spiritual leaders. Jesus prophesied, An hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshiper. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Proclaiming the real truth of the Word of God to the world. The Real Truth Radio Network at realtruthradio.com Number two, fear and intimidation projection. In these hyper-authoritarian groups, wherein there is a culture of domination and control, members are psychologically traumatized and indoctrinated with numerous fears and phobias aimed at keeping them reeling in diffidence and dependence on their leaders and the corporate group. So intense are those fears and phobias that departing members commonly suffer from various psychological problems and even clinical neuroses, and some even display the classic symptoms associated with post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Following their departure or separation from the group, in addition to deliverance from demonic incursion, many have a need for some form of psychological counseling. The following are some of the fears the leadership of these groups foster and project upon their adherents as a form of subjugation. A. Fear of open censure and rebuke. Various forms and degrees of public reproof, censure, chastisement, remonstration, and even open rebuke of members whom the leadership has deemed to be wayward, errant, and rebellious are a common practice in both discipleship shepherding groups and other cults. 
members who do not toe the line with complete obedience to every rule, regulation, code, and dictate passed down through the leadership are branded by the leaders with the scarlet letter R for rebellious and are publicly reprimanded in the smaller cell group meetings, sometimes from the bully pulpit, in the main meetings of the entire assembly. This ever-looming threat of prospective public humiliation and censure becomes a very effective means of predomination by intimidation to the entire membership. No one dare disobey or even question the dictates of or speak a critical word against the leadership of the church, lest the critic be subjected to this public dressing down. Open rebuke should be an extreme rarity and last resort, and certainly should not become routine. Scripture prohibits it except in the most egregious cases of persisting overt hypocrites, factious strife-bearers, and egregiously errant elders. B. Fear of disapproval and rejection. This is very similar and related to the previous type of fear that is projected, as well as intertwined with all the others. Members live in constant fear of getting on the wrong side of the leadership and receiving their disapproval and hence being rejected by them and or their fellow members. The prospect of finding real solutions and resolution for very real spiritual and psychological, i.e. pertaining to the soul, and spiritual needs and infirmities often is a primary motivation of many people as they search for a church group to become related to in the first place. They come looking for love, acceptance, and remedy of their deepest spiritual and psychological needs. But it is often these very needs and infirmities that make such people vulnerable to the exploitation and predomination perpetrated by these types of authoritarian groups. And no one, perhaps, is more vulnerable to such exploitation and predomination than the person who suffers from a spirit of rejection and its accompanying fear of rejection and fear of disapproval. A sense of rejection is a bottomless well that is never filled, regardless of how much love is poured into it. My personal view is that exploiting people who have such a real need for real ministry is as vile and reprehensible as it gets. And I know from many years of personal experience in dealing with this problem that multitudes of others share that view. Groups employing hyper-authoritarian doctrines often practice some form and degree of shunning, a highly effective technique of punitive manipulation through group ostracism that for ages has been a common practice within false religious sects and cults. Shunning is when a group scorns and disassociates from a member as a kind of chastisement and disapproval for some aspect of conduct considered improper by the group. It can come in the form of disdain, scorn, snubbing, avoidance, aloofness, outright exclusion, rebuffing, looking off on, giving the cold shoulder, distancing, sliding, and ignoring. Whatever the form it takes, everyone knows instinctively when he is being shunned. 
to the insecure and diffident, the effects of such disdain and disapprobation can be overwhelming and devastating. It is certainly telling that many pseudo-Christian sects, such as the Quakers, regard the practice as a legitimate rite of chastisement of wayward members. In hyper-authoritarian groups, fellow members shun members whose conduct has merited them the attribution of rebellious as a mechanism of open chastisement and intimidation, with the aim of shaming the offender into getting back into line. In order to get back into the good graces of the group, those who subject themselves to and succumb to this vile form of sorcery typically must endure the public humiliation of confessing their errancy before the entire assembly and begging forgiveness of the leaders and group. While to the casual observer this mechanism of manipulation may seem not so egregious, to members of these religious many-societies who are constantly striving for acceptance and fellowship, the effects of exclusion and ostracism by fellows can be psychologically traumatizing and spiritually devastating, making it a potent weapon of predomination in the hands of the malevolently motivated. Enjoying this podcast? Please take a minute to pray if the Lord would have you help us with the substantial financial burden of this program. We receive no grants or funding from any organization or government agency and have no other means of support than the gracious and generous giving of our listeners. SLM Inc. bears the entire burden. In about 30 seconds, you can donate at paypal.me forward slash slm inc again that's paypal.me forward slash slminc to give any amount thank you for your gifts generosity and graciousness c fear of denunciation and disgrace upon departure when anyone leaves one of these groups of their own volition for whatever reason without the approval and consent of the leadership, which usually is granted only in the case of employment-related transfer or death, or for a reason that is not acceptable to the leadership, those persons are almost always branded rebels by the leadership, and the reason for their departure is declared to be rebellion. Departees, whose departure is predicated on disagreement with the doctrines espoused and practices employed by the group, are invariably labeled as having a critical spirit, and their criticisms are declared to be invalid and unmerited and emanating from a rebellious and critical spirit. Harmonious and peaceable parting of the ways is virtually non-existent as the jilted and chagrined leadership invariably feels compelled to disparage the departees and to declare them persona non grata in perpetuity, forbidding contact with them by any of the remaining membership. The prospect of such denunciation and discrediting by the leadership can be especially disconcerting to those called to the ministry who find themselves in the position of having to depart the group in obedience to a calling from God. 
In such cases, the viability of both those persons' ministry and their livelihood can be very really affected by the acts of censure, condemnation, denouncement, anathematizing, retribution, recrimination, and blacklisting made by the scorned former leadership. Very often, those are not merely idle threats, but rather especially in the case of an itinerant ministry, because of the political nature of the ministry, a blacklisted minister can indeed have many doors of ministry closed to him, regardless of the validity and quality of his ministry, merely on the basis of having been dubbed a rebel by some scorned ecclesiastical autocrat or the ubiquitous neo D. Fear of excommunication. In the face of the prospect of such consequences of denunciation as those delineated in the foregoing, the specter of similar humiliation, disparagement, and repudiation resulting from excommunication then also becomes a very real and formidable threat looming over the head of every member. This is especially so after the entire life and that of their family has become intertwined and immersed in their church community. However, the ironic truth of the matter is that because of their desperation to keep every member as a part of the fold, rarely do these kinds of groups actually excommunicate anyone. Instead of excommunication, they implement various other of the techniques and mechanisms delineated here to attempt to intimidate any would-be rebellious members into compliance and submission. E. Fear of Judgment In addition to all the above factors, members are incessantly indoctrinated with the premise that if they ever leave the church or group without the approval of the leadership, they will incur the wrath of God and be under His judgment, which will result in terrible things happening to them because they are under a curse from God. Laced into sermons, orientation classes, and various person-to-person conversations among the members are melodramatic horror stories of people who, quote, got out from under the covering, end quote, of their leader and church community, and who, because of that, experience terrible curses and judgments in their lives. These stories are cited to illustrate that members should never even think of leaving the group for fear of all the terrible things that will happen to them if they do. Aside from the fact that this is precisely what members of cults and occult initiates are told, this is a totally false and unfounded claim for several reasons. First of all, as it was painstakingly proven in Chapter 5 of Charismatic Captivation, the premise of quote-unquote spiritual covering, as taught in the discipleship doctrines, is a total fallacy and myth. Our covering, or hedge of providential care and protection, does not come in any way, shape, or form from any human being or group of human beings, but from God alone. He will cover you with His pinions, and under His wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark an impenetrable rampart of protection. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, 
my God, in whom I trust. For it is He who delivers you from the snare of the trapper, Satan, and from the deadly pestilence. That's from Psalms 91, 4, and 2. We are to glory and take solace in the fact that we dwell under the shelter or protective covering of the Most High God, and that we therefore abide, continuously live, in the shadow of the Almighty God from which devils flee. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, Psalms 91.1. It is His shelter and shadow which are of and exist in the spiritual realm, that are the only valid and impervious protection against the attacks of the enemy that are levied in the spiritual realm. No human shelter and shadow, whether of an individual or a group, offers any protection whatsoever against such attacks perpetrated by evil spirits in the spirit realm. Second, God does not bring judgment upon a person or a family simply because they leave a particular church or group. There is absolutely no biblical corroboration of the ridiculous claim that he does. Rather, it is a totally unfounded myth. Leaving a particular group or church, for whatever reason, is not tantamount to abandoning the church or falling away from God, as these groups allege. No church or group is that sacrosanct. Every true believer has been baptized or immersed by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, whether they are a member of a church organization or not. The true Church of Jesus Christ is not an inanimate organization or even a conglomeration of church organizations. Rather, the true Church is a living organism comprised of true believers. Being a member of and engrossed in the community of some humanly invented and humanly run church organization and assembly in no way certifies, enhances, or has any bearing whatsoever on your eternal fellowship with God, but rather it is having been made a bona fide member of and immersed in, quote, the general assembly and church of the firstborn. End quote, Hebrews 12.23, that certifies and seals your eternal destiny and destination. Frequent fellowship with some segment of the true brotherhood is highly recommended and certainly synergistically beneficial, but it will not save us. We fellowship, worship, and receive from the Lord in corporate gatherings because salvation is the common denominator among us. However, absolutely no requisites regarding either the place of worship or the number of the worshipers are delineated anywhere in the Bible. On the contrary, those staunch organizationalists consumed with increasing the membership of their organizations hate the veracity and validity of it. Remember that Jesus himself vowed that he would personally attend and be in the midst of any meeting conducted in his name, even if the number of those gathered together was only two or three, Matthew 18, 20. And he made that vow without any reference to the place where that meeting was held. 
Jesus explicitly stated that true worshipers were those who worship the Father in spirit and in truth, that is, in accordance with sound doctrine. John 4, 23. Validity of worship is not determined by the place of worship or the number of the worshipers, but by whether or not it is inspired by the Holy Spirit and in accordance with the truth of God's Word. Thirdly, God allows all believers the latitude to make their own choices with regard to the group with which they identify, on the basis of congruity with their particular personalities, spiritual needs, interests, and emphasis, as long as the group they choose is grounded in sound doctrine and practices. Despite the absolute falseness of this notion, the prospect of being subject to circumstantial divine judgment remains a very effective weapon for making indoctrinated members of these groups paralyzingly fearful of ever leaving the group. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Real Truth. I'm Stephen Lambert. Please subscribe to the podcast, share with your friends, and visit realtruthradio.com to join our mailing list. Be sure to tune in to the next edition of The Real Truth. Until then, this is Stephen Lambert reminding you that with God, all things are possible, and all things work together for good to them who love God and are called according to His purpose.